Good morning, church. Rob will be back with us next week, but I have the honor of uh, completing our summer study on the book of Hebrews today, uh, and we are looking at chapter 13. We've spent the last two months uh, learning about how Jesus is ultimate and supreme, as our video just reminded us. Hebrews is called the book of better things because each major point compares the way things have been under the Old Covenant, laid out in the Old Testament, the Hebrew uh, history and ritual with the way things are better, with Jesus under the new covenant that he has established. This morning we sit with the truth that Jesus is unchanging. Verse eight in our text today will tell us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're covering a lot of ground, uh, the majority of the chapter, uh, 13 in Hebrews, in our time together, and since we just got to get a peek at our friendship group uh, in the announcements, I thought there was no better bunch of readers this morning than uh, representatives from our very own care groups. Now, care groups at Outlook are here for those in our church or for those from our community uh, who need care, who need a community of people to walk alongside them. Uh, folks from our friendship group in particular are in the commons this morning uh, so that they can talk about their ministry to adults with intellectual disabilities and uh, have the opportunity uh, to talk to any outlooker who might want to come be a part because we could all use a friend. Celebrate Recovery is another one of our groups. It meets ongoing on Monday nights throughout the year. This is a group that is welcome and inclusive to anyone with any type of hurt, habit, or hang-up. And I think that that counts just about every one of us in the room. And Grief Share and Divorce Care will start up in a couple of weeks. These are both 13-week programs for those going through the specific life-altering shifts of losing a loved one or enduring a separation or divorce. These leaders are all compassionate and understanding, and I am thrilled to introduce to you some of the leaders and representatives from our care groups as our scripture readers this morning. Uh, Artie Kingston from Grief Share, Jim Shuck from Divorce Care, uh, Don Bowden representing Friendship Group, and Eric Myers from Celebrate Recovery uh, will bring us Hebrews 13 today. This morning we're reading from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 through 16. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were being suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 
It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing, dis bearing the disgrace he bore. <clears throat> for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, <clears throat> let us continually to offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, please God. Thank you guys so much. When my husband, Jonathan, and I got married, uh, we didn't take a honeymoon trip. We weren't able, he was in school and didn't have time off, we didn't have a lot of money, uh, but we stayed in a hotel in Indianapolis for a night or two, and we had one thing on the agenda. We had one splurge. We were going to dine at St. Elmo's Steakhouse. Now, have any of you done St. Elmo's? Okay, spoiler alert, they do steaks there. Um, their shrimp cocktail also is excellent for clearing sinuses and nasal passageways. That's something else they're famous for. But it's a steakhouse, they have fancy steaks. Um, I'm not really a red meat person, uh, so I got like a pasta. It had shrimp the size of your fist in it. It was really good. But my husband did get one of their steaks. And I tell you, he took one bite of this steak, and he was never going back. I mean, I don't know if you've had a food experience like this, but his eyes closed. He just like meditated slowly to himself. There was a point which I didn't really need to be there anymore. Like it was just him and the steak. And needless to say, he loved it. He loved it. More so than that though, St. Elmo ruined steak for Jonathan, ruined it. Jonathan did not eat another steak for years after St. Elmo. I would offer if we went out for a special occasion or like, oh, can I make you something special for this or that? No, it's just not the same, he would say. Why would I get this when I know that is out there? That's kind of the response that the author of Hebrews is hoping that we have to the things that we've read and uncovered and discussed over the last few weeks and the things we're gonna look at this morning. It is the book of better things, folks. The author is making a compelling case that if Jesus has arrived, why would we ever return to things the way they were before? And so chapter 13 is the end of a New Testament letter. It's normal for a letter to end this way, to start with this list of like highly practical, tangible admonishments for the way that believers are supposed to live because of everything that has just been unpacked in the book. The author has written this brilliant and compelling explanation for how Jesus is ultimate and supreme over the way things have previously been done under Jewish law and custom. 
Now, remember, the audience here are Jewish believers, and so we're supposed to read, like, because of chapters 1 through 12, uh, this is how believers are supposed to respond. The first seven verses offered a very practical instruction. It says, keep on loving each other as believers. Practice hospitality by welcoming strangers. Remember those in prison, those who are mistreated. Other translations say those who are undergoing all kinds of adversity. We read these instructions as our practical responsibility as believers for how we are to respond to other believers and to those in need around us. See, in ancient times, it was a precarious thing to travel. Inns and lodging were uh, dangerous, they were unreliable, they were known to take advantage of people, and so Christians are instructed to open their homes, offer safe and reliable place for believers traveling to spread the gospel, and to treat them like family while you're doing so. Those in prison, they likely referred to those imprisoned for their faith. And remembering people, remembering those in prison implied an action response. You can't remember something in scripture in your head or in your heart without it leading to a bodily response. You can't separate those things. And so remember those uh, because those had to rely on friends and family uh, to meet their very tangible needs like bringing them food and encouragement. Be loving, be hospitable, treat those who are forgotten as you would want to be treated. Believers are instructed to have compassion and have empathy for one another. The text continues, believers are charged to honor marriage as the covenant that it is, to live content with what you have. All very practical, good stuff, right? These directives, to live open-handedly, loving and hospitable, compassionate, empathetic, honoring, content, even though the Hebrew Christians are going through intense persecution and hardship is because these instructions are based on the unchanging nature of God rather than their circumstances. And so to further illustrate this truth, the author of Hebrews moves directly into this section where he quotes two Old Testament passages back to back uh, that the audience would be very familiar with. Remember, the Hebrew audience is going to clue into Old Testament references that might go right over our heads uh, because they are intently familiar uh, with their history. And so I'm going to point them out. Uh, This happens a lot all through the book of Hebrews. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Okay, so never will I leave you, never will I forsake you is a callback to Deuteronomy 31. We're going back to the Old Testament where God is promising his presence. Now in Deuteronomy 31, Moses is uh, one of the spiritual greats that has been mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews, especially in the Hall of Faith last week that Zach referenced in chapter 11. And Moses is, in Deuteronomy 31, 120 years old, living in his prime of life. At this point, Moses has led God's people uh, in an exodus out of slavery, uh, including plagues and like parting a Red Sea with a staff and like all sorts of incredible things, and toward the destination uh, that God has promised them, toward the promised land for the people. But Moses uh, is a trusted leader. He has seen a lot of stuff. He's taken in the people through a lot of stuff. People respect him. They follow him. But God has revealed to Moses in this chapter that he would not be the one to lead the people to their final destination as he would die before he got to see the promised land. 
And so this is earth-shattering news for the Israelites. Uncertain days would be ahead for the people, and they would have to continue on without the prime figurehead that they put all of this trust in. And so Moses declares this promise from God for the people. And even more, he summoned a man named Joshua who would take up the mantle of leadership, and he declared this same command and promise directly to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus makes the same promise in Matthew 28 at the end of the Great Commission. He makes the same promise in John 14 when he promises the Holy Spirit. It's a theme. Circumstances change. Seasons pass by. We have the promise of the presence of God. Hebrews 13 continues into verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now this is another Old Testament reference in Psalm 118, a promise of God's provision. This psalm in particular opens with the refrain that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever through every generation. Again, God is unchanging. His nature stays the same. And this psalm was sung for certain special occasions like Passover. Theologians even suspect, here's your trivia for the day, that uh, Jesus sang with his disciples this psalm in the upper room after the Last Supper before they were to depart for Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Jesus knowing what was to come. My point is this, the Jews knew this song. They knew what it was to sing it corporately together as a personal testimony celebrating God's deliverance from trials that go beyond a single instance or circumstance or even a whole generation. We have confidence in Christ because we have the promise of God's presence and of God's provision. This promise made to the Old Testament heroes is still true to this first century audience of struggling believers and is still true to us today. And the Hebrew Christians very specifically fear what man can do to them. Like, oh, what can man do to us? They're considering ditching the faith altogether because of the persecution and the hardship that they are enduring. And the promise of God's presence and provision do not keep them from that persecution and from that hardship. Hear me, that's still true. Following Jesus does not mean bad things won't happen to you. It does not mean that people won't sin against you or that tragedy won't strike. That's not promised. I know y'all went back to school this week. and Some of you are seriously riddled with anxiety about it. I know you are trying so hard to overcome trauma that has happened to you and you're doing the best you can. And I know that sometime in the last few months or the last two years, you have suffered loss or uncertainty and you have been afraid in big and real ways. The text says to us that when those things happen, God is still who he says he is. And we can take comfort in that because what he says is that he will be with us. And so the author reminds them of the certain and unchanging promises of God amidst much uncertainty. He continues, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
We just tapped some of the Old Testament leaders of the faith. Moses served God faithfully. But even more specifically, the author is encouraging the audience to reflect upon the teachers that brought them to the faith. Who brought you to the faith? What leaders, teachers, meaningful people have shaped the faith that you have today? Was there anything striking about the way that they lived their lives? See, when I was a kid, we had a pretty hit and miss approach to this old school concept of family devotionals. Now, parents, I think it is incredibly important that you view yourself and recognize your role as the chief disciple makers in your kids' and students' lives. We get to partner with you in that, but that should naturally come with some sort of outlet to regularly talk about spiritual things. And so if your kids have the privilege, like I did, to grow up in a home with believers, use it. Include them in your discipleship. Uh, So anyway, family devotions. We had one memorably successful run at this practice where after dinner, my dad would pull out devotions by dead people. Secrets of life beyond the grave. This is my family of origin, folks. So it felt incredibly uh, normal for us to read an epitaph of a person found in scripture and look at how they died. Um, This is kind of a macabre book, but um, the purpose of this very niche devotional that I did repurchase, used online this week for this sermon, uh, was to reflect on how they lived. There is a lot to learn about a person from looking at their whole story, about how God used them, about how he shaped them. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, the author of much of the New Testament, is in this book, and his model of discipleship and leadership was, hey, you come and follow me as I follow Jesus, and then you and me, we will follow Jesus together. Which is great, because our teachers are to reflect the ultimate teacher. Following them should naturally lead us to following him. Our faith is based on certainty because Jesus never changes and his nature remains the same. See, inevitably we lose the people that we've been following. Moses did not get to take his people across the finish line. Paul was eventually killed for his faith. And we can look at the way they lived and the way that they died and we can see why we would be told to imitate them. These are incredible people. But inevitably we lose them. And so verse seven about leaders is followed by verse eight. Those believers who have shaped us come and go, the text says, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, since before creation, today offering us salvation forever, reigning in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. We have hope because of that. Jesus is clearly our ultimate teacher, better even than the spiritual giants in our own faith stories. He is consistent and he is to be trusted in a way that maybe not all should. See, it's interesting because verse eight is sandwiched in between two different verses about our leaders. Verse seven, encouraging us to imitate the leaders who have led us and shaped us in the faith. And verse nine, warning against teaching that distorts the gospel or maybe sets up barriers to it. Now, verse nine also starts kind of this new section that connects even more to the Hebrew history uh, and symbolism with a lot of talk about like altars and sacrifices and blood, just cultural stuff that would go right over our heads if we don't look at the context of the Jewish believer. 
See, the author is drawing a comparison here to the ancient sacrificial system with some very direct references to the book of Leviticus, the book that uh, your annual Bible reading plan kills uh, every year uh, in the first couple of months. (laughs) The whole book is about how God is graciously providing a way for people to live in his presence. This is what it's doing. Much of this, though, is through instruction on ritual and moral purity. See, the whole book of Leviticus provides this framework for how people can get close to God. This is not God trying to be difficult. This is not God trying to set up barriers. Rather, the instructions that God provides show this fierce commitment to redeeming his people. See, it starts, it's sandwiched with ritual sacrifices, ritual feasts, uh, priests being ordained and the qualifications for priests, uh, purity in the form of rituals and purity in the form of like your moral behavior. Uh, And then right here in the middle of the book is uh, laid out the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement uh, is an annual holy day that God laid out. It kind of rolls a lot of this all together into one. Atonement means to cover over one's debts. This is done in the Old Testament through animal sacrifice. The Day of Atonement is a sacred day where the high priest provides sacrifices to cleanse all of the nation of Israel's sins. This is get out of jail free day. This is wipe the slate clean day. The priest sacrifices a bull and a goat and he uses their blood, which is the symbol of life, on the altar to cover over the sins of Israel. But then there is a second goat. It is called the scapegoat. And the priest lays his hands on this goat and he confesses the sins of the nation and those sins are kind of transferred onto the goat and the goat is banished, basically. It's taken out of the city into the desert. And the bodies of the animals that are sacrificed, those are not to be reused or consumed where different parts of scripture that's allowed. No, they also are to be taken outside of the city and they are to be destroyed. See, God's people in the Old Testament, they sacrificed in anticipation of a better sacrifice to come. You sacrifice to account for your sins over and over and over, just hoping that eventually, one day, a better sacrifice might really cleanse you once and for all, or you might get this all straightened out where you don't have to do this anymore. But the Hebrew author is saying to the audience again, here's how things work. Here's the sacrificial system you have been under. And here is how Jesus has replaced that and become the ultimate and the supreme and the fulfilled and the whole better version of that. Because Hebrews 13 says that we learn that Jesus took our sins upon his head as a sacrifice and a scapegoat all rolled up into one and that Jesus was led outside of the city to atone for our sins. See, the old covenant required burnt offerings as a covering for sin. The blood of an animal had to be spilled for a temporary sacrifice, temporary solution to pray for the transgressions of the people. But the new covenant was sealed by Jesus' death on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer need to offer sacrifices for forgiveness for our sins because Jesus took care of that. Instead of shedding the blood of an animal, Jesus shed his blood. Jesus suffered in the body. Jesus was carried outside of the camp. The old covenant required a sacrificial altar, but the new covenant's altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's handled. So what do we, the collective audience, do as a result or as a response to that? 
Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We are released from the ritual purity found in Leviticus, but we are still called to the moral purity. The way we act, the way we treat others, the way we carry ourselves and behave matters. We just read some of that moral purity at the beginning of Hebrews 13. It matters, not because we need to sacrifice to cover over our wrongdoing, but because the way we live is in itself a sacrifice of praise. The old covenant was animal sacrifice for sins. The new covenant is a sacrifice of praise and good deeds, not to earn forgiveness, but instead just to please God. If we really grasp the sacrifice made by Jesus, wouldn't a sacrifice of praise and good deeds just be a natural response that flows from us? Let me tell you about the first time my daughter had a Dorito. Uh, We're a food-motivated family is what you're learning today. She's two, we're finally letting her try like the good food. I take her to Sunrise in Fortville for donuts on Friday. She drinks juice, which is flavored water. Uh, But the other day at small group, we're having walking tacos for dinner and Isla takes a bite of a full Dorito from an uncrunched bag and it's like in the rom-coms when everything goes in slow motion. Her eyes shut. Even more, she clenches her eyes shut. Her whole head like drifts up towards the ceiling or towards the heavens, I don't know. Um, Her little arms, I'm not making this up, raise and she just chews silently to herself like clenched like this. And then she just sits there for a minute with the aftertaste like. um, And then her face kind of flashes, her eyes burst open. She looks at me, she looks at Jonathan, she digs out more Doritos, and then she immediately starts trying to force feed the two of us. She's like, Daddy, eat this. Mommy, take a bite of this. She's convinced that we have never had this because why would we have had this and not given this to her? It's so good. And so then, you know, she watches in anticipation as I take a bite. She just wants to make sure the magic translates, like I'm also experiencing the same thing that she did. And then when she's sure, she goes back to her own bag of Doritos and she takes another bite and like those little eyes go closed and like that little head tilts up. And I hope one day that that is her response to the realization of who Jesus is and what he's done for her. I hope all of our conversion stories taste like Doritos. This natural uncontrolled response of praise and of sharing that flows as the result of the goodness that we have received and experienced. We get to offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord that is pleasing to God. This text says we do it continually. And this takes practice, friends, but to be in constant praise of Jesus is also to be in constant awareness of him. This is what we're growing toward as disciples, all the more, all the time. We offer praise that is the fruit of our lips, which is an unashamed witness. The fruit of our lips is also a callback to the book of Hosea. When Hosea, this prophet of God, calls the nation of Israel to repentance and encourages them to take words to the altar. Take words, he says, animal sacrifice, doing the thing that's listed, when you don't mean it, is not enough. God doesn't want it. Because the fruit of our lips speaks to what is inside of us. Like the fruit of a tree reveals the nature of a tree. We can't hide that. We can't fake it. 
we're revealed for what's inside of us one way or another. And when the fruit of our lips is naturally professing and praising Jesus, when that's what naturally is coming out of us, that is the most pleasing to God. We get to offer a sacrifice of compassionate service, of doing good, the text says, and a sacrifice of generous giving. None of this to earn God's favor, none of it, but all of it is an outpouring of the favor that we have received. And in doing so, we fulfill the moral instruction given in the earlier part of the chapter. Remember, we're not doing any of this alone or without support. We are promised God's presence and God's provision because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, despite anything and everything else. And so we can trust that and in response, offer a sacrifice of praise with our words and with our deeds and with our very lives. And so we know that Jesus continues to be the better way. See, the book of better things points to one better thing, one person, Jesus, only to our ultimate and our supreme savior. And so I'd like to take us uh, into communion with that thought. Uh, As we approach the communion table, uh, I want to remember, I want us to remember uh, that Jesus atoned for our sins, that he covered us with the sacrifice of his blood once and for all. And that we can trust that because Jesus doesn't change. See, his body, um, the bread represents his broken body, the cup represents his spilled blood. And so I just want to ask, have you sat with the weight of that lately. When we do remember, what call to action might Jesus have for us as a result? For the next few moments, reflect and take communion uh, on your own when you're ready.